Welcome to the Bridge Builder Program, an initiative of the Minnesota Catholic Conference, where we help you live your discipleship in the public arena. I'm Jason Adkins, Executive Director of the Minnesota Catholic Conference, and joining me in studio is our producer and Minnesota Catholic Conference Communications Manager, Kit Cross. Good morning, Kit. Good morning, everyone. Hope that you're having a very blessed Saturday. You can catch us right here every Saturday on Relevant Radio, AM 1330 at 11 a.m. But if you miss an episode or want to catch up on past episodes, just visit us at mncatholic.org podcast. Each week we will bring you great interviews on some of the major issues impacting how we live our faith in public life. We also answer your questions via our mailbag segment, and you can always email those to us at show at mncatholic.org or contact us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. And it wouldn't be the bridge builder if we didn't bring you a practical ways you can live missionary discipleship in the public arena. The church has historically said that the end or goal of politics is to foster the common good, and we here at the Minnesota Catholic Conference try to do just that at the Capitol in building policies and promoting public policies that serve human dignity and the common good. But in a world today that where there's a lot of confusion about terms and society seems to struggle over the meaning of words, I thought it'd be worth spending some time digging into this idea of the common good. What does that word really mean? What does it mean that the church and, and politics uh, seek to promote the common good? To help us understand this idea of the common good, we've invited Father Aquinas Gilbo to join us uh, from Washington, D.C. this morning on the Bridge Builder Show. He is the current prior of the Dominican House of Studies in Washington, D.C., an assistant professor of moral theology there as well. He completed his doctoral dissertation on St. Thomas Aquinas and the idea of the common good. Good morning, Father Aquinas. It's a blessing to have you today. Good morning. Thanks for inviting me on the program. First of all, we thought we'd ask you, what compelled you to join the Order of Preachers? Oh, what can help me to join the Order of Preachers? Well, I mean, it's it's just obvious the the Dominicans have the best habit you know, <laughs> among all the the the, the orders in, in the Church, right? Uh, no, I think it's a little deeper than that. I at least I hope it's a little deeper than that. I guess what would draw drew me to to the uh, the order was what Saint Thomas recognized in the 13th century about the Order of Preachers is that according to the ideal of Saint Dominic. The, the, the order of preachers, the Dominicans aim to live what, what he called the, the mixed life, which is to say it's to seek perfection both in a life of contemplation and in a life of activity. You know, if you look at uh, many of the other orders of the Church, I mean, wonderful orders in the Church, uh, they lean to one side or the other, right? I mean, the, the emphasis is on contemplation with action as a support to their contemplation, or they lean towards activity, you know, the active life with contemplation as a support to their activity. St. Dominic didn't see that kind of relationship uh, in the way action and contemplation would come together in the life of the order. It wasn't to privilege one uh, and to put the other in a, in a support uh, role. It was actually to seek perfection in the order of contemplation, perfection in the order of action, uh, which creates all kinds of tensions in life. It makes Dominican life quite complicated, but also quite exciting and, and quite the adventure as uh, we're called to the heights of contemplation like the Desert Fathers, but also to the perfection of preaching like, like the Church Fathers. And, and that's what each individual Dominican uh, attempts to do in, in living life in the order. So that's certainly what drew me uh, to the order and still, still excites me about being a Dominican today. St. Dominic started the Order of Preachers to combat um, the heresies of his day and to train priests and, and missionaries to give a compelling defense of the faith. The difference between, you might say, the Dominicans and the Jesuits are there, there are no more Albigensians, but yet we still see plenty of Protestants. So, 
that's right. One one mission has been accomplished. The other uh, <laughs> is ongoing, right? Yeah. Um, what? And we're happy to help our Jesuit friends in, in that in that work. Indeed, and God bless you for that. The, the tradition continues. So that's right. If if you're a Dominican, though, why would a Dominican go out and get trained in political philosophy as opposed to scripture or the church fathers or moral theology? Right. What tell us how your studies yeah. about the common good? Where does that fit into evangelization and what a Dominican might be doing in the world today? That's right. You might think for a priest or for a theologian, uh, you know, churchy topics would be more, you know, appropriate for him to spend most of his time, most of his study, you know, on, um, you know, Christology, Trinity, sacraments, the Church, uh, and those are all important disciplines uh, within theology. But when you, again, when to, to point back to St. Thomas Aquinas, when you look at his Summa Theologiae, I mean, his, his great summary of, of the science of theology, you find right in the middle of it— uh, extensive treatment of the moral life, uh, and a huge part of his treatment of the moral life uh, focuses on the, the virtue of justice, you know, rendering the other his due, that it's, it's integral to our pursuit of God, it's integral to our pursuit of heaven, that as the social and political creatures we are, we render our neighbor, the other, his or her due. And how do we do that well? Well, that's what the virtue of justice allows us to do. And part of the living out of the virtue of justice is that we live justly within the political community. Uh, and so that opens the door then to the theologian, to the Christian, uh, to examination as to what our political life is. Why is political life natural to the human being? Uh, and how is it then that our participation in the life of the polis, our participation in politics, uh, can in, can inform uh, or can be an integral part of of the Christian life. So that how is it that the pursuit of the good of the city is taken up into uh, our pursuit of of the good that's that's God Himself, uh, and that those two goods aren't opposed to each other. In fact, God has made it so and arranged it so that that our pursuit of the good of the city of the political community uh, is to be. Uh, included in in our pursuit uh, of God Himself, and so that's why politics, political philosophy, justice, you know, become proper objects of study for for the theologian and uh, and and for the Dominican. So there's no the church building on St. Thomas Aquinas uh, doesn't want to bifurcate uh, the moral and spiritual life from life in the city. That in fact this is a venue of our discipleship, and as Pope Francis says. A good Catholic meddles in politics because it's one of the highest forms of charity, and it serves the common good. Well, let's right. dive into that, Father Aquinas. So sure. what does it mean that politics serves the common good? Yeah, the common good is uh, an incredibly slippery term. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, we give it so many different meanings, and Aquinas recognized this in the third century as he's working, you know, his his way through these questions. He recognizes over and over again how uh, we use the term common good in so many different ways, and so that means whenever we do use the term, we have to pause for a moment, step back and examine you know, our use of, of that term, just to, to be clear as to what it is that we're, we're naming you know, with that term. And so rec- Aquinas recognized that there are um, different kinds of, uh, of common goods. There are ways that we use the term more properly, ways that we use the term more loosely. First and foremost, to get a grasp, then, of what the common good is, we have to understand what it's contrasted with. Common good is, is contrasted from 
what we might call the particular good. You know, there are common goods uh, because they're not particular goods, and they're particular goods because they're not common goods. A particular good is a good that's a good for me, that in being a good for me is a good only for me, which is to say it, it can only extend its goodness to me because that's just the kind of thing it is, like my banana. You know, I eat my banana. And when I eat my banana, that means no one else can eat my banana because I'm eating it. Therefore, it's a good for me. It's particular to me. Uh, it's not shareable uh, with another. So that's a particular good. So a common good, then, is a good that is, yes, a good for me, but in being a good for me can also be the good of another at the same time. So it's a good that's, that can diffuse, as we say, its goodness to many people at, at one time. Uh, so insofar as... Uh, my house is my house, but it's also, let's say, my spouse's house, my children's home. You know, it belongs to, to all at the same time. Uh, so in belonging to me, it can also belong to another. And that's, that's kind of properly speaking what a, what a common good is in, in distinction from a, a particular good. That doesn't quite help us, though, answer the, the question what essentially a common good is, because as Quinas recognizes, there are common goods that are really, really, really common in themselves, uh, and some common goods which um, appear to be common, uh, but which in fact aren't, because they're not so much a common good, but uh, kind of a collection of, of particular goods. Take a chocolate cake, for example. Um, that can belong to a whole family, right? Uh, but how is that good enjoyed? I mean, that, con that the common good of that cake can't be enjoyed by everyone, until it's actually cut up and, you know, pieces are given to, to different persons. And so that, that kind of good isn't so much a common good, but rather a collection of common goods because it has to be cut up and everybody enjoys a certain portion that was the whole cake. Aquinas says, yeah, we can call that a common good, but that's not a common good properly speaking. A common good properly speaking, and this gets to real, the real mystery of, of the common good, is that it, it's a good that can belong to many people at once and can be enjoyed by many people at once without being divided. And that's actually rather remarkable when you think about it. Uh, and this is where Aquinas begins to talk about things like the common good of the family and the common good of the city. You know, these are goods that we can identify. They're singular. They're numerically one. The one good of my family, the one good of the city I live in, uh, they belong to all the members of the family on the one hand, the good belongs to all the members of the city on the other hand, but it's enjoyed by all simultaneously without being divided. I can't cut up the good of my family and every member of the family gets a part of it. I can't cut up the good of the city such that everyone kind of gets their, all the citizens get their own part of it. It's, it's something that is enjoyed by all, uh, whole and entire you know, as their own proper good. And, and that's for Aquinas, I mean, the, uh, a common good properly speaking, and that points to these mysterious goods, these what he calls transcendent goods of the good of the family, the good of the city. We can also speak of the good of the cosmos, uh, of the whole universe in that sense. And, and then beyond the, the limits of creation, God himself as, as the, the ultimate uh, common good. So, that might have been a, a long description there, but you know, to, to get at what the common good is, we have to distinguish it from particular goods, but we also have to distinguish it from, from collections of particular goods to really identify those goods that are whole and entire and that people simultaneously enjoy, you know, whole and entire.
So there are common goods, you might say, like parks, right, in the sense that everyone can enjoy them and the good of the park is not diffused simply because everyone's enjoying it. Would that be a good example of a common good? Yeah, that that can be one. I, I think we it, it, that would kind of fall in between the descriptions of like the chocolate cake and the family or the city that I, I described. But yeah, that we can see that they can exist to a, on a kind of scale of of whether they're more properly speaking common or or more properly speaking collections of of particular goods. Now, in American political life, we filter everything, it seems, through a, a left-right political lens. And for a right. lot of people, especially on the right, the common good sounds like communism. But right. it's, it's far from that. So how can we help people uh, understand uh, what the common good is and help them be less queasy that we're really talking about redistributive politics or socialism or something like that? Sure. No, and I, I think... You know, the reason we get into trouble in our political discussions about the common good is because over the last few generations, and really, I mean, you can point to a problem in the whole of modernity, perhaps, in, in, in dealing with this issue, is that we've lost um, our a view of and our understanding of the common good in its proper sense, in that transcendent sense. And we've come to settle on an understanding of the common good that's just kind of a more material common good, which is to say a kind of a collection of, of particular goods, um, you know, so like the national treasury <laughs> or the means of production, you know, those things that are quantifiable, that are divisible. You know, we only tend to think of the common good in those terms, uh, so that when we hear politicians talking about the common good, we just think of the the reins of power, the the national treasury and, and, and the means of, of, of production. When for Aquinas and the ancients, that wasn't even the common good, properly speaking. Uh, the common good was, was much more important and, and transcendent than that. So let me just also note, too, that this tension between our and this understanding of, of the common good is also present in the catechism. Between the catechism and the church, the social, the compendium of the church's social teaching, you know, has a, this this tension, whereas the the catechism, you might say, tends to favor uh, a more instrumental, kind of divisible notion of, of the common good, whereas the compendium of social teaching reinserts this more classical understanding about the the, the indivisibility and transcendence of, of the common good. So insofar as our, our politics just focuses on those things that we can collect and then distribute, we're going to be in trouble because the higher form of politics, the higher mode of politics is not just to focus simply on that which can be collected and distributed, but really on kind of the peace and good ordering of the whole, you know, what kind of politicians, what kind of politics do we need to order the city according to its transcendent nature and not just to kind of direct payments of, of, of things to X, Y, and Z constituents. The more our politics settles on the latter, uh, the more contentious it's it's going to be. American public life, or at least the American political order, was is premised on the idea of religious neutrality, and and it seems that it's becoming more and more the case that we're not just neutral toward different creeds, but we're neutral toward conceptions of the good. How can right. we have a coherent public life, a flourishing city? if the political order is neutral on questions of the good, in fact, what constitutes the common good or even the highest goods? 
Yeah, well, that, that question is agitating uh, kind of the right side of our politics right now, right? I mean, when you see the kind of the, the, the conversation that, that erupted over the summer between, let's say, conservative commentators like David French and, and Sarab Amari, uh, you know, they've kind of taken the show on the road <laughs> recently and having public debates on, on this question uh, around the country. I think Aquinas would say that, I mean, I think we'd recognize uh, perhaps the need for some kind of neutrality, especially among things that, that are comparable. Uh, and so we see that, right, in, in uh, American kind of First Amendment jurisprudence, that the state doesn't pr- privilege, let's say, one Christian denomination over another. Uh, you know, it, just, it, it chooses to take uh, kind of a, a blind stance as to the merits of Catholicism, Anglicanism, Methodism, Baptists, you know, and uh, Presbyterians, and, et cetera. And even widening that between, let's say, Christians, Jews, Muslims. Etc. The real question is whether that neutrality, I think, uh, can can extend, or what I think the question is, is whether that neutrality can extend to things that aren't comparable, like belief in God and Satanism. <laughs> you know, why is it that because it, the government wants to remain neutral on in terms of religious realities, that if it, it doesn't dare to make a judgment between the merits and demerits between, let's say, theism. Uh, and atheism or theism and, and, and Satanism. So it doesn't seem to me that religious neutrality um, would imply a complete neutrality to the point of a, of a blindness by the state in regards to the questions about, or even general questions about, about God. I think Aquinas would recognize that because he says that, um, you know, when you look at the common goods that exist in creation, the family, the city, the cosmos, that each of those, they exist in a hierarchy, and the lower is oriented to the higher, such as the, you know, the families oriented to the city, the city, to the universe, the universe itself, to God, and therefore there's a certain orientation that the city itself, as a common good, has to the common good that is God, and therefore should, the, the city should organize itself in its politics to remaining open to uh, kind of the, the higher horizon that, that, that is God. That doesn't mean that the state then needs to enforce certain creedal statements necessarily, but it does have to function in such a way that it recognizes that each citizen, you know, is open to, you know, a, a personal relationship with God, and that that their politics, you know, should should reflect that that also. So, so that would be my answer. Maybe kind of long and <laughs> convoluted, and maybe trying to split the baby here. But uh, I think some neutrality can be good and desirable, but not an absolute kind of blind neutrality to all questions uh, regarding the good and uh, and God. Well, the debate about whether or not America is a confessional state, at least in a secular, atheistic form, will rage and continue. But I don't think that we as right. Catholics can have other any other choice but to try to defend religious the religious freedom, the religiously neutral state, which is what we've got, at least in our founding documents. And at the That's same right. time, push back against what we experienced here where some... Uh, satanic monuments and and make the coherent argument that a religiously neutral state doesn't have to be one that makes room for satanic monuments because right. the idea of sa- sa- Satanism is you know worshiping a, a supernatural reality that desires our destruction right sure. and the, and the also, state doesn't have to tolerate that that's right now <laughs> I would also make this distinction that I mean, for Aquinas I mean he would I think see the idea that uh, to manifest some kind of belief would be 
confessional in the way that that we use it, you know, in uh, in, in modernity. That there is a way in which we can talk about God and and man's orientation towards God and the city's orientation towards God without making, again, kind of making those confessional statements, which is to say that, that the, the state then has to privilege either the Catholic way or the Muslim way or the Jewish way of, of understanding the, these questions. There's, there's, there's a philosophical treatment of, of these questions that, uh, that by, by natural reason we can come to, to common answers about, and it's that kind of orientation uh, you know, to 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 the divine or, or, or to the good that 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 can inform, uh, you know, the the politics of a very diverse people without the state privileging, you know, one confession over over another. People are often intimidated by Saint Thomas Aquinas, uh, but your province is trying to make him more accessible through its podcasts and Aquinas one hundred and one videos. Tell us about how that ministry came about and why the angelic doctor is still relevant and accessible to us today. Sure. No, it's a great thing that the Thomistic Institute is doing here. That's uh, an institution that exists here in the, the Dominican House of Studies in, in Washington. Its purpose is to bring the, the thought of, of St. Thomas and the wider Catholic inter- intellectual tradition to, to the world. Uh, and it does that principally by bringing the tradition of Aquinas and, and of the Church to, to university campuses, specifically secular university campuses, and to give Aquinas and, and the Church's tradition a hearing in those, those places. It's been widely successful, uh, and so we're very proud of what the Thomistic Institute is doing. But as one of its works, it's, it just published... Uh, or released just within the last few weeks, a new initiative called Aquinas 101. This is a series of videos that, one by one, just walk you through uh, Aquinas' Summa Theologiae and, and point out the, the highlights of, of Aquinas' teaching just to, to help the viewers uh, to shape their own understanding of reality, their own worldview, to engage both faith and reason better and, and deeper levels, um, which we believe you know, contributes us to being better persons. The more we know, the better we can love, uh, and we take uh, Aquinas as a sure guide there, as just a, a teacher of reality and a guide for, for grasping reality. Uh, and so that's what these uh, videos, Aquinas 101, is, is, is trying to do, is to help the, the viewer hone their skills at, uh, in, in grasping and, and being in contact with, with reality. Father Aquinas, thanks for joining us today on the Bridge Builder program. Father Aquinas Gilbo is Assistant Professor of Moral Theology and current prior of the Dominican House of Studies in Washington, D.C. Father Aquinas, we're grateful for your time and helping us unpack the idea of the common good and uh, the ministry of you and your brothers and the Dominicans and sisters, of course, too, uh, to bring uh, reason and faith together to defend uh, the gospel truth. So God bless you and your work. Thanks for joining us today on the Bridge Builder. Thank you. It's been a pleasure to join you, and blessings on all your good work. Thank you, and we'll be back in a moment with our mailbag segment. Welcome back to The Bridge Builder, where we help you connect your Catholic faith and public life. I'm Jason Atkins, Executive Director of the Minnesota Catholic Conference, and now we're going to delve into our mailbag to hear what comments and questions you've sent to our producer, Kit Cross. Kit, what's in the mailbag today? Today's mailbag question centers around party platforms. Each political party really enshrines certain beliefs into its platform. So the question is, as Catholics, can we actually align ourselves with any given party, especially if their platform includes stances that go against church teaching? 
Well, I like to say that each party is partially right, but mostly wrong. The party platforms, reading them in many cases, will make one feel politically homeless. And that's the reaction of many uh, Catholics about the political world today. And now there's nothing wrong with working within the party system to elect good candidates who bring the truths of the faith, Catholic social teaching, policies that uphold human dignity and the common good into public life. But oftentimes when we hear people talking about party platforms today, um, it's really for partisan reasons. They're trying to get you to vote one way or another by saying that a party's platform contains this provision or that provision. Therefore, it's necessarily the case that one must vote one way or the other. Now, I think the thing to think about is that party platforms are almost irrelevant today in today's political world. They have very little binding effect on what public officials do once they're in office. It used to be the case that parties were far more powerful, but today, uh, super PACs, alliances, super PACs are political action committees, alliances of various interests. Um, on the DFL side in Minnesota, we have like Alliance for a Better Minnesota, which is amalgamation of various special interest groups that get together to support Democratic candidates and the Republican side. You have the Freedom Club. You've got the Chamber of Commerce, for example, on the Democratic side. You've got the Teachers Union, et cetera, et cetera. These groups have far more influence and sway about what politicians actually do as opposed to party platforms. Now, the activists care about what are in the party platforms and want you to pay attention to those, and they help uh, nominate candidates and get them elected. But once they're in office, it's the money that drives the politics less and less the issues or things in a party platform. So that's one thing to be aware of. Now, one thing that um, often is the case that you hear about that one party is pro-life in its platform and one party is pro-choice. The Republicans have pro-life planks in its platform and the Democrats are pro-choice. And therefore, the, the line is, is that this makes it absolutely necessary to vote Republicans. Well, it's a little bit more complicated than that in the sense that Again, the platforms are almost uh, irrelevant in many ways into political life. And then B, what are people actually doing and what are politicians actually doing in the public square? So you had a Congress that was Republican and a president who was Republican. They couldn't defund Planned Parenthood. So again, actions speak louder than words in many instances. That's not saying that that platform position is unimportant because in many cases you'll have uh, Republican candidates who are pro-life and opposed by Democratic candidates who are pro-choice. That puts the thumb on the scale in favor of the pro-life candidate. Uh, but you have to weigh each election individually, the character of the candidate, what the relevant issues are in that electoral race. Is this a municipal race where perhaps both candidates are pro-choice? Well, it's also the case that abortion is not an issue, for example. Uh, at the municipal level as much as it is at the state and federal level. So you have to look at the issues involved in the various campaigns, and you have to look at the candidates, you have to look at what the issues are in the public square, and then make a choice based on that. Who's going to best promote human dignity and the common good? Right now, abortion politics is at a bit of a stalemate, because until Roe v. Wade gets overturned and sends that issue back to the states, not much is going to happen. So do you base your vote on what a candidate is on paper or a party is on paper? Should that point one way or another. Well, the, the big danger here um, in these sorts of statements that seem to compel people to vote one way or another is that we bind the church up into partisan political interests. And, and though we want Catholics engaged in public life, do we really want the people to see the church as aligned with one party or another? So be very, very careful about um, your counsel to others when you're kind of telling them to vote one way or another based on party platforms. We've tried to explain why that is not as important or as relevant as you might think it is. And then again, the caution that the church has to be a credible evangelical witness. And the, the idea that 
people have to vote one way or another because of their Christian faith. That's that's a real difficult dynamic and one that should be approached with serious, serious caution. Maybe in some extreme cases that will be the case, but in our public life, the decisions are a lot more complicated than simply looking at party platforms. And we have just a minute before we have to go today, and we want to provide you with a practical takeaway for our bricklayer segment. This week, we're looking at the Feast of Christ the King. That's coming up on Sunday, November 24th. The church celebrates the solemnity of Christ the King each year at the end of ordinary time, right before we head into Advent. The solemnity was instituted by Pope Pius XI back in 1925. He recognized that issues of growing nationalism and secularism were really related to the societal ills that were breeding increasing hostility against the church. And today his encyclical, Quas Primus, essentially that means first things first, it reminds us that while governments and ideologies come and go, Christ is king forever. And so in order to help you really live out this feast, the USCCB has created several different resources for parishes to use to help mark the Feast of Christ the King. They have reflection videos, little homily helpers, bulletin inserts, all sorts of things that you can use within your parish to help celebrate this feast more fully. It's also important that on this day and really throughout the year, speak out against attempts to limit our religious freedom in the public arena. And we also need to be praying for and supporting Christians around the world who face persecution by their own governments or others who simply do not recognize Christ's kingship overall. That's all we really have time for today, but you can become a sponsor by simply emailing me at show at mncatholic.org. You can also become a part of our show by sending in your questions to me at show at mncatholic.org. And remember, you can catch up on all our past episodes at mncatholic.org slash podcast or on any of your favorite podcast app. Have a blessed weekend. <laughs>